Previously on the Tony Kornheiser Show. In other news, Pat Sajak quits. Now he's going to do this full season. Yes. And then he's going to quit. Pat Sajak's my age and he quit. And so I got a lot of stuff last night. When are you going to quit? When, and then they would say, I don't, it's not that I want you to quit, but when are you going to quit? <laughs> it's really right? So I don't, I don't know what to do about that. Not Probably not today. Maybe tomorrow, but probably not today. Uh, other things to add parenthetically. Thank God the NBA is over. Now. <laughs> the Tony Kornheiser Show is on now. All righty then. Uh, you know, I, I didn't stay up for the end of the Nats game where the Nats lost on on a throw to first that hit a guy in the back or yep. something like that and then rolled away and a guy scored all the way Another from interference call. Yet yeah. again, an interference call. And so Davey but was... Davey on a shirt. Davey was very upset about this and Davey attacked the umps. And that's fair. I mean, that's okay when that happens. Uh, I missed Dominic Smith's explosion. A triple, an RBI triple in the ninth inning, his but 17th RBI of the year. Racking him now up. Now on pace for at least 40 a RBI. A lot of speed rounding into third. <laughs> yeah, so I can't even imagine. I feel that. like you may be motivating him. I, feel I think like the you're code, motivating him. I think the code's responsible for this. Uh, I think the code. it is. I the May code. I, yes. I, you know, he's stopped. I believe that if, I don't, I don't know how to do this. I sent this note to Matt Rennie last night at the Washington Post. That I don't know how to do this, but I'm sure there is a system, a metric system, for determining the least productive power position hitter in all of baseball. I'm sure you can oh, do this. Oh, there has to be, yes. And I believe he's in the bottom five. A, a guy at first base who plays every inning of every game, who has one home run and 17 RBI and three extra base hits, 60 games into the season. Right has got to be at the bottom. It's not a small I mean, sample you, you, size. You have to account. Like, you can't put him against somebody who's played 20 games. No, he's played every the, inning of every the, that's game. That's how, that's right, Michael, a yeah, metric I, would, would I love your orientation them. for this because most people would say, I'm sure there's a list that shows a ranking of the top producing power <laughs> the bottom. hitters. And you just immediately go to the bottom of the, uh, the, of bottom. the spreadsheet. Yeah, the bottom. I mean, I, I, there's got to be a way to do that. And I, I'd be very surprised if he's not in the top five. I'd be very surprised. All right, so you heard Chris's voice. Chris is here. We need to talk to Chris. Hello. Um, over the last couple of days, we don't, don't do a lot of politics here because it's divisive more than ever in my lifetime, you know, and everybody, you know, people want a respite from that. But a former president of the United States has been charged with a series of crimes having to do with his particular position. Let's understand something. We're not going to get into the great new word of the week, which is weaponizing. We're not going to get into that. But we have to we have to understand that while this is a crime, the specific thing of retaining uh, these classified materials and sort of keeping them in a non-secure area, this is something that pertains to like 37 people in the history of the United States of America. I mean, you and I can't do this. So while it is the breaking of a law, and I'm setting this up because I, I have come to feel this way, it feels more to me like the breaking of a rule as opposed to the breaking of a law. And the notion that someone would go to prison for this, that's a little difficult for me. And I'm not a Trump guy, but that's a little difficult for me. My first question about this is why does it feel like he's winning 
He's winning this. Well, so I think... Am I crazy to say that? No, you're not crazy to say it. Um, I think that there are two tracks that you have to judge on. There's a political track and a legal track. Right. in the political track, he is winning. He's winning. Yes. Um, and he has flummoxed the other people running against yes, him. They, they, they don't, don't know, know what to do. They don't. No. Um, Except I, Chris Christie. I, right. Who's just anti. Um, I would point to Nikki Haley, who you probably not a lot of people pay attention to, but Nikki Haley has had three different positions on Donald Trump's indictment in the last four days. Really? I thought yes. she was the one who was going to pardon him. She was. That was one of the three positions. Right. She first came out and said, you know, this is an abuse of power. You can't have the current president's justice department investigating the likely one of the likely people running for president she then came out and said these are serious allegations you know this was reckless it could, reckless. Have, fall, it could have fallen into the wrong hands yes, et etc et i agree and then she came out and said but i <laughs> i would pardon him if i was president so yes he has flummoxed is the right word he has flummoxed his rivals um he has uh he, he continues to enjoy And I'm not even surprised anymore. I don't think you can be surprised to be paying attention. He continues to enjoy significant support within the Republican Party, the vast majority of which believes this is a political prosecution uh, or persecution, depending on how you look at it, and that he is a victim here. Now, that is the line that he plays, but he's very good at it. So that's the political end. The legal end is, number one, I'm sketchy, Ron, because I'm not a lawyer, Uh, but I would say... I think a little more fraught for him. Th- this case will go to a trial. Uh, it probably will not happen before the election. Just you know, just in terms of so what? While he's the sitting president, he, if it, he comes, it, well, it they just could, pardon him. He just says we he could would. certainly pardon himself. Although self pardon is a somewhat dicey legal proposition, not ever been done before. But but. Donald Trump is in the fa- it not not ever being done before him? is not a problem no, for him. No, no. <laughs> right. um, Everything so, in his life right, has is never not been, not been done yes. before. Um, so I think I think legally he's in a little bit more of a well dire strait is overstating it, but I think yeah. he's in a little bit more of a difficult position because remember this is his second indictment. He was already indicted once before for paying allegedly paying hush money to a porn star with who he had an affair with alleged affair with. Uh, and it's possible he'll be indicted again in August. This is in the Georgia case over, you know, pressuring state officials to overturn the election results. So is the cumulative weight of those three things enough to push him out of the race? No, he, he literally has said, I'm, he said the last over the weekend, I'm never leaving the race, which I take, you should take literally. Like, I don't think he's ever getting out of the race, including if he loses, um, so again, politically, I think he is winning, which is sort of amazing given that he's first president ever to be federally indicted, but his support is rock solid legally. I think a little bit more problematic for him. I, I think it is unlikely he goes to jail just because he's a former president of the United States, maybe a current president of the United States by the time this all comes to pass. But I think it is a little more problematic. For I'm him. not on that side. I'm, I'm. You're I'm, on the heat. You don't want no, no, someone no, to go I'm to not jail on that for this side of the aisle. Oh, I, I mean, yes. I'm not. I'm, I'm not. But even I would say enough already. Like, let this junk go already. Um, and he's bet. By the way, I he's think betting he's betting on that. He benedi- betting on and benefiting from that. Uh, um, that that sense that people have that they're just will, wary of. I it. will say what is scary for me. This guy Andy Briggs. 
Yep. The congressman yep. from Arizona, Arizona. Yep. Is basically, it seemed to me, threatening to take up arms against the government. Yep. Do we, is that... Is that what we elect people to do? And there's a guy named Clay Higgins, too, who's former military, who who posted a tweet <laughs> with all this like military jargon, like stand ready. Like, I don't I don't yeah, much care what Carrie Lake says because she's not elected not to anything official. at the moment. Right. No. But I do care when elected members of the House of Representatives yep. say things that seem to be only one degree away. Well, Andy Biggs is way out. It's a Biggs, Biggs. not Riggs. Yeah, Sorry. Way, it's okay. He's way out on the Trumpian extreme. He's elected, though. Uh, but he is an elected official from any, Arizona. Are there any Republicans anymore? The Republican... Not no, as you would think. Not, not, not as you would... Well, that's not true. There are, as you would think of Republicans, so this is Republican circa maybe 2010-ish, when... Mitt Romney and Paul Ryan were a ticket uh, in 2012. John McCain was was, a Republican. That was 2008 and 2012. Those were the last, that's about the last time that sort of the, that was a majority of the Republican Party. There are still some, like, you know, Mitt Romney, I think, would fit your definition of like a traditional. He's exiled. But, but that being that person has made him persona non grata. So I, I, I'm going in much too deep on this, but there are people running for president. Uh, Senator Scott is running for president. Governor Haley is running for president. Governor Christie is running for president. Uh, Vice President Pence is Meet running Paul for president. Meatball Ron. You know, yeah, it's, uh, Governor Santis is running for president. Putting fingers, we call Putting fingers. I'm saying I'm using their titles because they have been elected. Yes. Most of them more than once. Yep. More than once. What are they running for? Yeah. What exactly are they running for? Because they're not going to beat him. So there's two things I, th- I I would agree with you. I, I was having a conversation yesterday in which I said I think he has a 90% chance of being the nominee. Now, there, that means that there's a 10% chance he's not the nominee. But I think what they're running for is this belief, which I think is wrong, but this belief that the cumulative weight of all his problems will at some point collapse him. But... The reason that I think that's wrong is if you look back at his life is filled with cumulative problems. That's his whole, his whole life is controversy. He's constantly either going bankrupt or fighting, feuding with someone or, and so it's oxygen to him. That's what he, that's what he, it's how he lives. It's how his life has always been. And I just, I understand. I understand why people like him. I get yeah, it. Yeah, he has a magnetism. Yeah. Yeah, no question. Yeah. Uh, and he's charismatic. Yeah. I, I, in, in what I would say is a dangerous way at mm. times, but he is charismatic. Played golf with him. He, Greatest he, day ever. <laughs> it was so much fun, but it was, you know, a long time ago. I couldn't imagine. But you remember present. it because sure. it was memorable because that's sure. who he is. Sure. Um, so I think a bunch of them, like DeSantis, I think is, and this explains why they won't go after him, by the way. They won't attack him because I think they don't want to piss off his base in the event he gets out of the race. I just think that second part of it is is fundamentally misunderstanding who this guy is. So I was, He's not going to get out of the race. He never has. He's never admitted defeat in his entire life. And he's not going to start now. I was talking to a couple of people the other day who happened to be Republican lobbyists. Mm-hmm. And they said, you shouldn't take what we're saying seriously because we live in this bubble. This is what we that's do for to, a living. That's the Mitt Romney Republican. Right, right. This is what we do for a living. He said, but they weren't sure he was electable. They were totally sure 
he could be nominated. Yep. They weren't sure ultimately that he was electable, that there would be a number of people out there who might have at one point voted for him who just look at all of it and go, gosh, I don't know. Yep. Do you subscribe yeah. to that? Because I, I, I think he's I think totally he, elected. I think he is. That's interesting. So I think he's by far the strongest candidate in a primary. I don't even think it's close. I mean, he, he has a 30-point lead right now. Now, people have lost 30-point leads before. Rudy Giuliani at one point in 2008 had a 30-point lead. I mean, it, Atlanta it Falcons lost it. Right. There you go. <laughs> Tom, it but if Tom Brady was on the other side. <laughs> I don't know if Tom Brady's walking through that door. <laughs> that's right. Um, uh He's so I think he's going to be the Republican nominee. I I struggle to see how he 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 wouldn't be, and I struggle even more to imagine how if he isn't how he gets out of the race. I, I just don't see any. Right. Can you imagine him being like, I just want to congratulate Governor DeSantis on his victory? Mm-hmm. No, it's impossible. I mean, it's not it's not right. possible to imagine based on what we know. I think he is the. This is not contradictory to your point that he, whether he can win or not. I think he is the weakest of the potential nominees for Republicans in a general election, which does not mean he cannot win. But I think the problem for him is that the whole general election is decided by independents, voters who are loosely aligned to either loosely aligned to one party or not aligned to one party. And I think um, he struggles with them. He lost them by 13 points to Biden in 2020. I think there's no evidence to suggest that those kind of voters are going to be into voting for someone who could be under three criminal indictments, which whether you think it's real or not just, is I just... problematic, I think, for those voters. So I, I think, look, polling right now shows him beating Biden, narrowly, but beating Biden. So the idea that he can't win, I think the story we don't talk enough about is that, look, lots and Michael and I were talking about it before the show, 60 plus percent of people don't want Joe Biden to run again. That includes a majority in some polls of Democrats. So nobody, would Bi- have, nobody has any particular juice for Trump and Biden again. And that's the nobody. thing. That's the thing is like, yes, Trump has a lot of problems, but Biden has a lot of problems yeah. too. And yeah. I think people don't think of that. Like he has, if we, if it was anyone else other than Trump, like if you subtract Trump from the race and it's just DeSantis and Nikki Haley and Tim Scott and Christie and Asa, Asa Hutchinson and all of them. We are saying, man, this is a Republican nomination worth having because Biden is going to enter the general election really weak, right? right? He's in the low 40s in approval. His approval on the economy is even worse. So I do not rule out the possibility of Donald Trump winning. I remember doing this show the day after the 2016 election and just being like, I cannot believe that happened. So I'm not, I now think you can't say, no, he can't win because I think there's there's data that suggests he can win. I think he can win. So I think he can win. Yeah, so I think he can there, win. it comes down to like three or four states, and in those states, you know, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin—the states we all talk about—and within those states, you're probably talking about margins somewhere between ten thousand and fifty thousand votes. So, I mean, you know, it's like—is he going to win the popular vote? I think it's unlikely he wins the popular vote. Doesn't matter. Doesn't have to win the popular. Can vote. I ask one more question, and I know there, are, everybody has stopped listening to this already. Who normally yeah, exactly. listens? Yeah, exactly. Well, us. especially because I've been talking. <laughs> no, no, no. This is subject matter. Can I ask this one more question? If if you take away his personal style, his flamboyance, his argumentativeness, his standing up and screaming at everybody else mm-hmm. all the time. Is it possible he was a pretty good president? That the country was okay for those four years? 
that whether he believed in it or not, when COVID came around, he he cut loose all the money and said, get us a vaccine as quickly as possible, and that economically we were okay. I mean, isn't that possible? Yes, it is possible. Um, I think that I, what I would say is it it is not fair to say everything he did as president was bad, which I think is the default position for a lot of people because that. he is so noxious personally, right? right? Because, because he does lie. Just he just lies constantly. I right. mean, whether you like him or not, he's just constantly lying. Right. Um, I do think there were things, including I was gonna. It's funny you brought it up because I was gonna bring up. I do think the the streamlining of the process and greenlighting of the the vaccine. I mean, they came up with a vaccine. Now he look, he didn't do it, but he came. He put in place the things to help the government come up with and the private sector come up with a vaccine in record time yeah. to a to a threat that no one had foreseen when he you know five years ago. I think he did. Um, significant damage to the sort of broader idea of what the presidency can and should be both domestically and internationally, like like what it means to be president, how you behave. So I think that those things matter. But I do think there were policy accomplishments that we're not all bad. I think it's really hard to say. And I think that Republican, I'm talking myself into it. Republicans say this now that, oh, well, everything Biden does is bad. I, you know, uh-huh. I just, it's just not, there's just no way that that's true. And it's certainly not true for Trump. Yeah. Okay. I like it that I didn't know you were going to be a Trump. We got to get you a MAGA hat. Yeah. Re-MAGA. <laughs> uh, Make America that, great again. Again. I want the hat that the guy wears in the front, front row. row. The one of the Las Vegas brothers who's got yes. the front row seats yes. in the Nats game. No, the, the hat stopped, now says Save America. He Save stopped America. wearing the MAGA hat. The Save yeah. America one is the new one. It. All right, let's, Tony, shut up and get out of here. <laughs> uh, Mark Feinstein, when we return, I'm Tony Kornheiser. Check out our new NBA show, Beyond the Arc, part of the CBS Sports Podcast Network, where you can find me, John Gonzalez, NBA insider Bill Ryder, and Ashley Nicole Moss, five days a week talking all things NBA. Whether you're looking for insightful discussions, upbeat commentary, breaking news, interviews, or coverage of all the biggest stories in the NBA, our new show is the place to be five days a week. Download and follow Beyond the Arc on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. You're listening to The Tony Kornheiser Show. This is Phil Lentz, who was in politics. Pals with Chuck Todd. Yes. And now is making music, which is probably the way that everybody in politics ought to go. Just start making music. And Phil writes, thanks again for making my bluesy the end number of the other the show the other day. Fun fact, both Michael Wilbon and I are graduates of Northwestern's Mandel School of Journalism, though I was long gone from Evanston when he arrived. Here's another song from my CD you can use, That Far Away Look. It's lovely. It is, isn't it? It's lovely. It plays in Mark Feinstein. We have two issues for Feinstein. Two. We're going to go a little bit depth on these, but let's start with what's with the Mets. What's with the Mets and all of the sort of talk about should the owner blow the whole thing up and the owner saying, that's not who I am. What's going on there? You know, $350 million payrolls that don't get you what they used to these days. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, when they, when they signed Verlander this offseason, they decided not to sign DeGrom, which turned out probably to be the right decision after he's having Tommy John surgery. Right. Uh, but when they signed Verlander and everybody said, wow, Scherzer and Verlander, and Alonzo and Lindor, look at all these names and look at all these yeah. stars and this team is going to run away. 
it doesn't work like that all the time. And we've seen that by, you know, teams going out there and winning the World Series or getting to the World Series that are not in the top three or five payrolls, uh, you know, time and time again. Um, you know, yeah, Scherzer and Verlander are lock first ballot Hall of Famers, no question, right? Them and Kershaw, the three arguably best pitchers of the last 20, 25 years, but they're 37 and 40. And you just can't, you know, not everybody's Tom Brady. You can't count on 37 and 40-year-olds just continuing to do what they do because they are who they are. So I think you look at the pitching as the first problem. The Edwin Diaz injury in, in, in the WBC certainly hurt them. David Robertson has been fantastic uh, in the closer role, but he would have been better for them in the eighth inning role, handing the ball to Diaz in the ninth. So their bullpen just hasn't quite caught up with that injury. And other than Alonzo, you know, the, the offense is not exactly clicking. Jeff McNeil's not looking to the batting title this year. And Lindor has been uh, good with runners on base, but not good overall. Uh, and so, you know, I just think you look at it, they have not performed to their capabilities. Their division uh, is good. You you watch that division a lot. Sure. The Braves are sure. just chugging along as, as the, the machine that they are. They lose Max Fried. All right, don't worry about it. We'll, you know, Bryce Elder will win the Cy Young this year. Uh, it, it just seems like, um, you know, things aren't going right for the Mets. And then, of course, in the market they're in, when things do start to snowball, like you said, all of a sudden it's, well, get Steve Cohen on the horn. Stevie, what are you going to do about this? Uh, you know, is Buck the answer? Should he go? Is Billy Epler in trouble? Uh, things have to move because this is New York, and if your team is, uh, you know, $350 million payroll is getting you under 500 and looking up in the division, uh, something has to change, right? Well, I read a lot of quotes from the owner the other day because we were going to do a story about this, but something else, the Bradley Beal story popped up, uh, and that Mike had more juice for that than, than doing a story on the Mets, and that's okay that's for That's shocking. Yeah, that's okay. But I, um, I certainly read the quotes from the owner of the Mets, and he said, that's, that's not what we do. You know, it, it doesn't make any sense to do it. I think it's a good team. We're going to stay with it. And and what I was struck with, Mark, was that he was not a shake-it-up guy. And he said, basically, I'm in the finance business. This is not how it works. You don't go nuts. And I thought that, too. If I had somebody running my money, would I want a guy who was volatile and, and anytime everything went wrong, everything got blowed up? I, I would not want that, right? I agree 100%. And, you know, when Steve Cohen first came into the league, no one knew exactly what kind of owner he was going to be. All you knew, he was a super rich guy who uh, was a fan of the team and said, we're going to win the World Series in the first five years and, yeah. and, and I'm going to spend money. And everybody said, that's great. But the question was, is he going to be George Steinbrenner? Or is he going to be Hal Steinbrenner in terms of his approach to the team? Uh, you know, George Steinbrenner would have been his third manager already sure. uh, at this point in, if he was owning this team. I think it's smart because really you look at it, it's very rare that you can fix a baseball team on the fly uh, in June. Um, you know, yeah, you can fire a manager that sometimes does it. We saw it last year with, with Philadelphia. They fired Girardi and Rob Thompson came in and, uh, you know, turned out to be the right guy. Yes. Uh, he also, you know, turned out to have players who played really well. And, uh, you know, how much of that is a manager? I, I'm typically a guy who believes a manager may impact five to ten games a year, maybe, if you're like a really impactful manager. Uh, the players are the ones who determine what happens out there. And, you know, if Max Scherzer and Justin Verlander were pitching like they did last year, uh, you know, if Verlander was challenging for a Cy Young again, 
then Buck Walter and Billy Epler would look a whole lot smarter. So um, I, I think it's the right approach not to blow it up. You look at this team and you say, yeah, there are certainly some moves they can make, uh, you know, between now and, and the August 1st deadline to, to try to get something fixed here. Um, you know, they could certainly benefit by adding a reliever or two. Um, and as bad as it is, they're, they're 32 and 36, but they're four games out of a playoff spot right now. So you don't blow it up when you're four games out of a playoff spot. Now, if you're a team uh, that's, you know, four games out of a playoff spot and you look at your team and say, well, even if we get there, we stink, right? I mean, uh, you know, Boston, for instance, right now, they're five games out of a wild card. Boston is not a team that's going to compete in the American League. The Mets are a team where if you get to the playoffs and your guys get hot at the right time and you're throwing out Scherzer and Verlander and you've got Alonzo and Lindor and these other guys, that's a team that can make noise. So, uh, yeah, I, if I was Steve Cohen, I'd be doing the same thing, having faith that, that you know some of the back-of-the-baseball card stuff will, will regress to the mean. Okay. Let's talk about the Oakland A's. They got 28,000 people the other night on reverse boycott night. If they had 28,000 every single day, they wouldn't be moving anywhere. Uh, they'd be in the top half of attendance in the league, even though Wilbon went crazy and said, Every, it's empty. And he died. I don't know what he's talking about. Um, but it appears that they are going to move to Las Vegas. The Nevada Senate approved public funding for a stadium that the state of California is not going to do. Um, should we feel sad about this? I mean, is there any way to save them? Can the commissioner say they're not moving? They have to sell. The NFL has put pressure on Dan Snyder to sell that team. Now, there's no threat to move, but, you know, a league can pressure one of the owners if they want. Yeah, obviously that's a different situation. As a fan of that unfortunate football team, that's a situation where uh, that environment had become so toxic and obviously all of the lawsuits and everything else that he wasn't forced to sell because the because the fan base was right. withering away. Because if it was, they would have told them to sell 10 years ago. Um, you know, the problem with the A's is this club exhausted every possible measure to try to get a new ballpark built out in the East Bay. Uh, they tried it downtown. They tried it on the Coliseum site. They've tried it everywhere. And every one of these measures has failed. And, you know, if you've been to the Oakland Coliseum in the last 20 years, uh, all you have to do is step in there to know they need a new ballpark. It yep. is a dump. It is the worst ballpark in the majors by a landslide. Uh, Tropicana Field is like a palatial estate compared to the Oakland Coliseum. So, you know, they tried to keep the team in Oakland, but you get enough stadium votes to fail. You have to look at alternatives. I don't think Rob Manford would step in to try to stop it because I think, uh, you know, Oakland getting out of the Coliseum is good for this franchise. Uh, and I think, you know, going to Vegas, a market that certainly has shown that it can support professional teams, uh, as they're probably still drunk from the Stanley Cup hangover the other night, yeah. uh, I think is probably going to be a, a good thing for them. The fan base, even when the A's have been good, right? And we always talk about the money ball and Billy Bean, uh, and you look at what they are now at you know, 19 and 51 after winning seven in a row. Um, even when the team was winning 95 games and, and with the little engine they could and was developing guys like Josh Donaldson and Matt Chapman and Matt Olson, and they still weren't drawing people because of the stadium, I think. So um, the other night was uh, Mark Craig from the Athletic, who's an old friend of mine who grew up out in the Oakland area, uh, put it best. He said it was sort of like a wake the other night. It was a chance for those 28,000 people to go out there and sort of say goodbye to their team because a lot of them have said, 
that's going to be the last time they step foot in that ballpark. They're not giving any more money to this owner. They're not giving any more money to this team. Uh, this reverse boycott thing was actually um, set up before the Las Vegas move was announced. This was a yes. This was a reverse boycott to try to get him to sell the team. Yes. Then it was announced, and then it really became sort of a okay. Well, this will be our fond farewell, and um, it's sad. You think about the history that the A's have, what they did in the seventies, what they did in the late eighties with the Bash Brothers and all that, uh, and then what they did with with the Moneyball teams, uh, even though they never won the World Series. There's a lot of history there. A lot of really good players who have played there, and it's unfortunate to see it happen, but. This is uh, sports in the 21st century, and if you're not going to be able to operate a sustainable business where you are, then you look to get up and go somewhere else. Do you think they'll be the athletics in Las Vegas, or you think they'll change the name? I-, I would hope that they would keep the athletics, only because, you know, the athletics were not an Oakland-based name. They were, That's they right. were the athletics before they moved to Oakland. Kansas uh, City. They're still the Las Vegas Raiders. Yeah. Um, you know, they're unfortunate for Oakland. They've had to watch two of their teams leave from the same city. Yeah. Um, and even, you know, the Warriors who were in Oakland, or they moved, they're across the bay, but that's uh, it's still not Oakland. So uh, it's been a rough a rough go here for the last five, ten years for, for the Oakland sports fan. You have to feel for them because if you've ever been out there when things are going well, it's a really passionate fan base. Um, but no, I mean, I, I don't see any reason why it wouldn't stay the athletics, but, uh, you know, that remains to be seen, I guess. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, thank you. Thanks, Tony. Mark Feinstein, really good. That was great. We'll take a break. Chuck Culpepper will join us from the Los Angeles Country Club, site of the U.S. Open, which begins, it's on now. It's not on now because it's, this is 8.30 in the morning, so it's 5.30 there. It's not on yet. But, boy, the first seven or eight groups with people you've never heard of, they're out at 6 a.m. We'll be back with Chuck Culpepper. I'm Tony Kornheiser. You're listening to The Tony Kornheiser Show. These are Kenny McNeil and Matthew Schell. This is a song, an instrumental. We did instrumentals twice today called No More 9 to 5 uh, from an album called We'll Find a Way to the Chill Afrobeat album, which was released at the end of May. The vibe is as if Santana made an album in South Africa and Zimbabwe, where my mom was born and then grew up respectively, Matthew Shell writes. Michael, if people like Matthew Shell and Kenny McNeil, um, or Phil Lentz earlier in the show, want to send us their original music, how do they do so? Send us your music by emailing it to jingles at tonycornizershow.com. Are we selling anything today? Uh, yes, we still are. We have TK Captain 1. The little guy turns 1. Yes. Right. Uh, celebration of Father's Day, U.S. Open Week. Put on a fresh polo and go out to LACC. Wave to John for us. That's good. Yeah. John O'Donnell will be there. Chuck Culpepper is there right now. He has left Paris. He's going halfway across the world. He's in Los Angeles. Um, it seems like, well, I was concerned about the John Rahm comment the other day where he, I think he used the word betrayed. We may feel a little bit betrayed. Once they put the peg in the ground, a lot of that stuff is forgotten, as in all sports. When the action starts, the other stuff disappears, uh, and that's happening today. But what is your sense of the players, the guys who stayed with the PGA Tour and how they feel now a week later after what appears to be an agreement between the PGA Tour and the Saudis? I think it's precisely that that word betrayal, probably, that they there's a little, you know, it's, it's kind of rare to, to come across athletes who sound maybe as lost 
as they do in terms of, um, you know, in terms of like where their careers are going. And obviously, you know, no, nobody should like really, really worry too much for these people, but, um, who, who have great lives, but they, they have had, had a loss of control of that, I think. And maybe that's where it is. It's people who try very hard to have control at, at a game that's hard to control. And now they're, they're, uh, sort of career path and what it's going to do. They've lost control of that and they don't have any control of that that they thought they had. John Rahm is not an insignificant person to say these things. You know, he's not the 43rd ranked player in the world. He's the guy who just won the Masters and he's one of the top three players in the world and appears to be sort of very popular with everybody. Right? I mean, so when John Rahm says this, it's meaningful, is it not? That's right. I would say probably the most meaningful voice of all of, all of them. You know, he's, he's somebody I j- just want to listen to all the time. He cares a lot about his role in um, answering questions and trying to, to do it properly. And he, he's great at it. And he's, you know, he, he's very thoughtful and He's not unreasonable, and he's not, um, you know, he's 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 not irrational or anything. He's just he's just completely, you know, sort of this almost sage mind among the fold, and um, you know, he's lived around the world and come comes from from Spain, went to Arizona State, and he's just he's just very very, I would say, with it, and just completely, you know easy to listen to and and worth listening to and so for him to say it uh was i would say probably the voice most powerful and and he seemed to realize that yeah rory didn't speak he's going to have to speak after a round today they got rory paired and this is a fabulous pairing with kepka and matsuyama i mean this is just tremendous um but rory not speaking what does that tell us I guess the stress that yeah. told me of, of uh, just uh, at a um, I thought a little bit in a different way of like Naomi Osaka, who was very good at press conferences and then suddenly, um, you know, revealed that they they caused her great anxiety. This was in 2021. And she, you know, she would rather not do them for a while. And this is an entirely different reason, different thing. But Rory is very, very good at that forum as well. Yeah and served as the de facto spokesman for the players who stayed on the PGA tour and they you know and and was very eloquent about that and and very frank about that and so for him to refrain from speaking just told me how just confusing the whole thing had been it's not going to surprise me at all if Rory has a bad tournament it it's really not it's not going and I like Rory a lot that is not going to surprise me you're out there writing about them. You're also writing about the course. Um, this course has some things that we don't normally see. Do you want to talk about them? Oh, my. It's like, it's like some sort of storybook or something. You know, just to walk it. It was a great pleasure to walk it. It's, it's, you can live in Los Angeles, as I did for four years, and not be aware that it's there or, or maybe hear of it but not be aware quite where it is, kind of tucked in between Beverly Hills, Century City. Um, at certain points as you walk along, you can see downtown L.A. in the distance. 
sort of was in a haze yesterday. It has this little gumdrop number 15 that might play at 78 yards one day, depending on pin placement. Um, that uh, is just it just kind of sits there in the middle of everything. Number 15 and all these other holes go go by. You know, it's not in a corner or anything like that. It's and it's just almost. It's where people like to maybe perch themselves to watch the watch the tournament. If you had to sit in one place all day, that that would be one of the places. And it's it's unique. It's and to have a a, a hole that short is just I don't know. It's just a, a great element of this. Um, it's the course is surrounded by you know Lionel Richie's mansion. People will point out to you uh, um, the the old Playboy Mansion where uh, had a backyard zoo. And on, on Monday, at least, there were still sounds at the 14th tee of the monkeys and birds from that. So it, it has a lot to it. That's, and it's, it's very mysterious in that it stayed very private through the years and, you know, did not welcome celebrities, did not want that noise. Um, first major for it, uh, first U.S. Open in Los Angeles. I was very surprised by that. I was very surprised yeah. that this is the first major for LACC. I really because it's a it's a famed place. Yeah, yeah, and people who know courses think it's one of the best in the world, and think that this this uh, event will will make it come up in those conversations about the best in the world more than it tended to before. There is, I mean, there's about a ten mile circle you can draw, and maybe it's less than that in which there are Bel Air, Riviera, Los Angeles Country Club, Brentwood, and Hillcrest, all of which at some point give you views of downtown Los Angeles. It's just, it's, you've, I know you've walked many of those courses. It's just remarkable, these courses, right, in such a small area. Right, and remarkable just, you, you start getting into questions about the value of the real estate here, you know, <clears throat> what if that were not a golf course, what, what would be on it, and because it really is tucked. You know, this one especially right between all these boulevards that, you, you know, are just clogged all day long with people going by and sort of blissfully, or sorry, not blissfully, but unaware. They're unaware, yeah. Of, of, of what's there and what's sitting there. Is there a player that you think you do, is, is totally suited for this mentally, physically, whatever, and that you like to win this? You have to, you have to, I've heard a lot of Cam Smith put in, into that. Yeah, Steve um, Sands picked him yesterday. Yes, yeah. Because of his his game and um and his short game and his ability to adapt. And um, I would throw out, I, I always feel like when we bring up a name, automatically doesn't play well, yeah. you know, but almost as if they're related. But I would throw Xander Shoffley in there too. Really good U.S. Open player, never lower than 14th, I don't think, and never uh, lower than seventh, other than one 14th place finish. But has that uh, maybe that kind of game too that could could work work well here, and and hasn't won a major yet, and has contended so often, which of course gives you pause a bit. But I have to think it's going to come one day, so I'm thinking about him a lot. Okay, I'm going to go back to the French Open um, f- with you if you don't mind, because that was last week. Uh, Djokovic, is he number one all time for you? He is not for me. He is for Wilbon. Is he for you? Yes, he is for me. He's 
it's the it's not only the 23 to 22 to 20 it's the a lot of the the tournaments that come up next beyond those you know he's won the most yeah in that regard too so and i just can't process really completely how he at the start of 2011 it was you know 16 slams for federer nine for nadal and one for him at that point, it was 12 and a half years ago. The idea that he's caught them, it just, and, and caught those two people who were just so indomitable and, and so great, both of them. I'm just floored that he's done it. And, and, you know, he's done it while skipping some of the yeah. slams because he wouldn't get a, didn't want to get a vaccine and, 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 and being defaulted from one that he would have won because he slammed a ball and it, you know, it went. <laughs> went into the the lineswoman's you know it hit her and so yeah i I think um i think he'd be on 25 or 6 without any pandemic or anything like that and i think um for me yeah he has become strangely enough never would have thought it but he has become the best yeah i mean i hold out for labor and i hold out for other people but the record that he has put out there djokovic is is undeniable and he's going to win three or four more because these guys, as great as Alcaraz is going to be, and as great as Rude may be, it is so tough to beat Djokovic in a major. You know, it's going to be a lot easier to beat him the second time than the first time, and I think he can skate through about three more. Chuck, I really do. Yeah, and, you know, you look at, what was it about Federer? It was that beautiful, that sort of grace that he brought. There was a beauty to his game that, through people and then with Nadal it was this power and this will and with Djokovic it's this composure you know the idea that he, he played six tiebreakers in the tournament and won them all had 19 winners and zero unforced errors in those six and uh reminds you of the 19 Wimbledon final when he won three tiebreakers against Federer and never made any unforced errors in those it's this this kind of fortitude about him is, is really something to watch. Thank you so much. We borrow you from every time zone that you're in in the world. Didn't know you had lived in L.A. You've lived everywhere, man. <laughs> everywhere. Chuck Culpepper, boys and girls. We'll take a break. We'll come back with email and jingle. I'm Tony Kornheiser. This is the Tony Kornheiser Show. The Tony Kornheiser Show. Hit it, KJ. Here comes Tony's mailbag. Got your email, faxes, and your notes. Here comes Tony's mailbag. Gonna read some for all of you folks. Accompanying herself on the ukulele. It's just lovely. It's pretty cool. You want to do the Bethesda Bagel ad? Yes, Bethesda Bagels got some fresh hot bagels for you today. Good. Uh, Bethesda Bagels, we love them. You will as well. Just go to BethesdaBagels.com for the location in the D.C. area nearest you. Then pop on in and you will be thrilled. We don't have a song today. We have something from a movie. Sophomore dies in Kiln Explosion. Oh, my God. I just talked to her last week. She was going to make a pot for me. That was the end of Fawn Leibowitz. That was the end of her in Animal House, a movie that cannot be made today. So watch it as often as you want, but it cannot be made today. Thanks to our guests, Mark Feinstein, Chuck Culpepper. Thanks to our sponsor, HelloFresh. Remember, you can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and Odyssey. 
get the show through Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. Can I just say that when I presented that to you last night, I said, look, it's not a song, it's a movie. You're like, oh, these are much know, tougher. tougher. And I gave you the second half of the quote, and you got it. Yeah. 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 So, well, because it's animal. <laughs> um, from Marcus, on today's show, well, it's yesterday's show. When talking Canada, Tony and Nigel mentioned poutine probably being available in Tim Hortons. Maybe you can, but it would be like getting New York-style pizza in a Dunkin' Donuts. Mm. Even if you're mayor of Dunkin', you're getting your pizza and poutine <laughs> elsewhere. This is Marcus from Toronto. I got a reward. The great I Midwestern the city. The big one. <laughs> Wilbon can sit. Toronto is east of Buffalo. <laughs> it's east of Buffalo. It's How great, can it be in the Midwest? It's great Midwestern city. Uh, from Camden. You cannot get poutine at Tim Hortons, despite how much that might make sense. Hmm. Okay. From Ken. Love the show. Been trying to find out where I can see it on News Channel 8. It's on mm-hmm. News Channel Just 8. Just get it on yeah. your cable. Yeah. Uh, from Travis problem. in South Weber, Utah. Or Weber. It's probably Weber because Weber State. Yeah, it's probably yeah, South State. Weber, Utah. Yes. After Monday's podcast, I had to go to find my sole picture of the shawarma platter I frequently consumed while I was deployed to the UAE near Abu Dhabi. I'm sure there are many different variations, but this was the most popular in my area. Like Michael says, it's hard to explain. But think of the most exotic spices and flavors you can imagine that would come from this region, and you got it. Please refer to the attached picture for your viewing pleasure. Yeah, it looks like... Like a yeah, speedy? It looks... Well, no. I mean, it's you know, it's it's in the pita bread. It looks like the pita bread it's stuff. Delicious. It's delicious. Oh, is it? I've know. never had it. Oh, you would like it. From well, Brian Moeller. Like oh, no, you're not. Okay. Yeah, yeah, all yeah. the accompanying I was going to say, I, I was going to say, I like it, but it's not a sure thing for you. Yeah. Brian Moeller, episode 167, <laughs> Table Rock Lake, Missouri. I played in a golf tournament yesterday. My team placed hard enough to get a little shop credit. The first thing I thought of was Mr. Tony would be happy. The show has really gone to my head. Unfortunately, the shop did not carry any Johnny O, mm-hmm. but I did walk away with this sweet vest from Oakley, picture attached for those watching on News Channel. Oh, I that go, is I nice. Go the I'm resisting the urge glasses. to have shop credit printed on the inner lining for my own personal touch. <laughs> P.S. Tell Alex Cobb to eat it. From Michael Snyder, this Syracuse native was amused listening to the extended upstate discussion. But it was raised to new levels when I read that New York is making 10 different license plates with different plates for each of what they call the state's 10 regions. Central, Western, Finger Lakes, Southern Tier, North Country, Mohawk Valley, Capital Region, Mid-Hudson, New York City, and your beloved Long Island, featuring the Montauk Point Lighthouse. Plates and regions together at TK Double Dip. If there's any real sense of what's important to the Central Region, they will represent it with a 24-second clock on the plate, honoring Danny Biasoni, the owner of the real Nats, the Syracuse Nationals, who invented it. This is true. And saved the NBA. I've included a picture of the eternal clock and the plaque. Reveal it on the cheeserie night at the old Northside Ball Orchard this summer, and it's a trifecta. And he sends this in from Jerusalem, and there's a plaque to the 24-second clock, and there's the 24-second clock is up in the town square. And that is, if you ask me, what is the most important thing that ever happened in basketball? I will not say the tw- the three-point shot. The 24 seconds. I'll say the 24 seconds. The only sure. good thing to ever come out of Syracuse, then. What about your boy? <laughs> he is not my boy. What about, <laughs> what's his name? Eric Devendorf. Devendorf. What about him? We Did are boys. Didn't he write or he, talk he is, to We you? have been in correspondence. Yeah. Uh, from Chris Ratt and Te-Ano, uh, T-E-A-N-A-U, Te-Anau. In New Zealand, I'm loving Kerry Russell in The Diplomat. Can you let me know what episode I can expect to see TK in the background watching sports <laughs> on TV shot. in the bar? 
Also, can I be uh, please consider for the official furthest little from TK, 9,174 miles. Just because it's New Zealand. Yeah, a bit of a drive. We'll see you at Terry Edie. Was that episode the one where they put somebody in a suitcase? Your episode? I don't know. No, I have to I go back and look at that. So I got this. This is, this is pretty long, actually. Um, go to the end here. It's from Todd, who is also T from Afraid of Figs. They sent us stuff. Oh, right. He sent us all sorts of like things, the Reggie Bar and Beyond. Mm-hmm. So there was a Randall Cunningham bar in 1993. What? I do not remember that. A Randall Cunningham bar. You have this picture of it. <coughs> there was an Isaiah bar in 1992, obviously in Detroit. And the ad says, peanuts and caramel slam dunked in milk chocolate. Oh, we could buy a there Randall was a Cunningham Mark bar. Price mm. bar. Mark Price bar. Mark Price? In 1995. Mark Price, which, which T says received a bit of notoriety in 2015 when a fan vowed to eat his still unwrapped 20-year-old sweet if the Cavaliers won the 2015 championship, and they didn't. Hmm. It was a Ken Griffey Jr. bar. As a rookie in 1989, there was a Red Grange bar, which I assume makes sense since 1926. Earl Campbell had his own hot links. Doug Flutie had his flakes. Yes. And yes. if you're thirsty, you can grab an Arnold Palmer anywhere, but that's different. And he's the former lead singer of Afraid of Figs. And he says, shockingly, I haven't been invited on the Chuck and Roxy show yet. Hmm. Chip Robinson, Mount Pleasant, South Carolina. Tillamook's on sale for three ninety nine at the Harris Teeter on Highway 41. You want me to pick you up? So, what is the, we like the mudslide. I like the mudslide. Mud the one. I like the, uh, the strawberry. But you have to be faster on your way home because it melts quickly. Yeah. Ooh. Since you opened Monday by appointing an official solstice coordinator for the show, can I ask a practical question? Are we playing Stonehenge today? <laughs> no, we're not doing <laughs> Dancing to the Pipes of Pan, I am Hampton neighbor <laughs> in Dallas, Texas. Houston. From Stephen Gainesville, just wondering when pitchers and catchers report for wedding season. <laughs> yeah, wedding season. From Bob DeFrades in Tucson, formerly of Kensington, Maryland, after Nick Taylor's 72-foot walk-off putt, he tosses his putter, but it never comes down. Where did it go? It's like Prince's guitar disappearing after his awesome solo. For while my guitar generally yes. sweeps the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, yes. the world wonders. It's the greatest. From Chris Cocazella in Salem, Massachusetts. Ooh. I just wanted to write in and say thank you to Jason Samino of the Capital Weather Gang, not only for explaining the smoke situation that has been blanketing the Northeast, but also for naming my future heavy metal band, Siege of Lightning. <laughs> and one more, Matt in Jerusalem. I'd like to add something to the recent discussions of New York geography. I've had similar discussions with friends of mine who grew up in Florida. I grew up in central Florida, and I routinely refer to anything in the three southeastern counties, Dade, Broward, and Palm Beach, as Miami. It's all Miami. It would be interesting to discuss this with Wilbon, whose definition of the Midwest is as broad as a Phil Cousy strike zone. But he is particularly, he's particular about the lines of demarcation around North Scottsdale. Yes, you can't try to figure out Wilbon. Wilbon presents different things all the time. Yes. You know. He 10 does to 15 all... degrees cooler up there. Uh, P.S. Whichever little gave me the recommendation for AKA shawarma. Thank you. It was really good. I still might like my usual spot. Manavichetsi. Better. Oh, Manavichetsi. Sort of like Manashevitz. But it's nice to have choices. Uh, Michael. Would you take a moment, please, at the end of the show to just talk about the baby Reed today? Baby boy Reed. Reedy Bead celebrates one year with us. Yes. Uh, and I'm sure Chris and Dad, you guys can and sort of think about your own experiences. But we are moving past this phase of our life. And we are just so incredibly blessed to have these three wonderful boys. Mm-hmm. And just amazing to see them grow up. And I heard there was a shout out yesterday on PTI. It said, happy birthday tomorrow to the captain. Yes. And afterwards, Wilbon asked me, 
uh, Derek Jeter's birthday, and then he said, well, Kareem's? Willis Reed? Said, no, no, no. It's, None of those things. No, it's the baby Reed. Yeah. Baby Reed. You know, Willis Reed. I mean, yes. there's only one captain. In, in my, I understand everybody's got a different captain. There's one captain in my life. Yes. It's Willis Reed. Uh, if you're out on your bike tonight, everyone, as always, do wear white. Later, he gets the rebound, passes it to the man, shoots it, and boom goes the dynamite.